Welcome to On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, voices of resistance and alternative news from the nation's capital. I'm Esther Averam. And I don't know about you, but as I see the United States reeling from crisis to crisis, I feel the weight of history bearing down on this country. Whether it is blowback from imperialist wars, a warming planet hurling hurricanes our way, or what is now regular carnage in a society that allows weapons makers to dictate public policy. Every day it is possible to really feel what Malcolm X called the chickens coming home to roost, and those in power are scrambling as the crisis deepens. 100 years ago, Vladimir Lenin described in his book, Imperialism, the Highest Stage of Capitalism, the kinds of crises that we face today. And 100 years ago this week, there was the Russian Revolution, specifically what is referred to as the October Revolution, which was the first time socialists had taken and held power and put workers in charge. The Russian Revolution inspired national liberation movements around the world, challenged imperialism, and emerged as a counterweight to claims of capitalism's superiority. Later in the show, we will hear a major address given this week in D.C. by scholar and activist Anthony Montero to mark the centennial of the Russian Revolution and its impact around the world during the last century. That impact is also felt here in the United States, where socialism is being discussed more and more, as recent polls indicate that a majority of millennials look on socialism favorably and, as a self-described socialist, received millions of votes during last year's presidential election. All of that is coming up during this hour, but first our headlines. Democrats are reveling in what some are calling the blue tide of victory from Tuesday's elections across the country, but the winds are occurring as the party remains fractured over continued revelations about how the Democratic National Committee was controlled by the campaign of Hillary Clinton during the 2016 presidential campaign and over how to rebuild the party, which lost more than 1,000 seats across the country during the eight years of the Obama administration. The party is fractured 
also over who gets to take credit for Tuesday's wins. Local grassroots activists still energized by the Bernie Sanders campaign or the Washington establishment wing of the party, which was blamed in a recent report for continuing to ignore its base and ignore voter suppression while it chases elusive white swing voters. That report is at democraticautopsy.org. In addition to the gathering for the centennial of the Russian Revolution, there were many other actions here in D.C. this week. People from across the nation gathered Saturday and Sunday for the Black is Back Coalition Conference titled The Ballot and the Bullet, Elections, War, and Peace in the Era of Donald Trump. The gathering at Howard University addressed issues in the coalition's 19-point national black political agenda, including community control of the police. Chairman of the coalition, Omali Yeshatella, told reporters that a focus on community control of the police can direct energies of those protesting against police terror. We've seen courageous people who go out and block interstates and do other kinds of things, but what are we fighting for? And this makes self-determination something concrete. We speak about the emancipation of African women. We speak about advancing the interests of the African families. We're talking about black community control of the police. We're talking about reparations for black people. This is stuff that begins to put meat on this whole question of self-determination. What the hell are we fighting for? And so that's been something fundamental to us. In addition to community control of the police, other items in the coalition's agenda include release of all political prisoners and end to mass incarceration, full employment, and an end to gentrification. The coalition has a working group on community control of the police and more information at blackisbackcoalition.org. Now, this week, also, the Trump administration announced that it will end temporary protected status for thousands of Nicaraguan immigrants, many of whom have been living in the United States for decades because of violence, natural disasters, or other dangers in their home country. Their special immigration status will now expire in January of 2019. More than 100,000 immigrants from Honduras and Haiti will learn in the coming weeks whether their protected status will be extended or whether they will face deportation. Related, hundreds of participants in the Deferred Action for Child Arrivals program, or DACA, rallied on Thursday in D.C. with family, friends, immigration leaders, and allies. The action was part of a series of walkouts of students across the country in support of legislation that will give young people brought to the U.S. by their parents permanent citizenship. Carrying signs and banners, they staged a demonstration inside the Hart Senate building where some protesters were led away in handcuffs before the remainder of the crowd marched onto the west lawn of the Capitol where they rallied. My name is Brenda. My name is Brenda. And I am here. And I am here. Because I have an expiration date. Because I have an expiration date. Because I support my family. Because I support my family.
organizers urged impacted immigrants to reach them at weareheretostay.org. In climate news, Representative Nydia Velasquez of New York and Benny Thompson of Mississippi are still calling for an investigation into the number of deaths in Puerto Rico in the aftermath of Hurricane Maria, after it was reported that more than 900 bodies have been cremated since the storm without being examined by the office which determines whether a death is storm-related. There is also no answer from the Trump administration about why its policies directly contradict the federal government's national climate assessment, which states that Earth is now the warmest in the history of modern civilization and that, quote, based on extensive evidence, it is extremely likely that human activities, especially emissions of greenhouse gases, are the dominant cause of the observed warming since the mid-20th century, end quote. In Bonn, Germany, where the UN Climate Summit is underway, the United States is the only major country that did not set up a pavilion. A U.S. people's delegation in Bonn is offering an ambitious alternative to President Trump's support for fossil fuel companies and new pipeline projects. This is On the Ground, onthegroundshow.org, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital. I'm Esther Averam, and we're going to continue our international headlines with our geopolitical analyst, Professor Gerald Horn. Well, Gerald, as Donald Trump continues on his trip to Asia, his buddies in Saudi Arabia are raising all kinds of alarm with a total blockade of the besieged and starving country of Yemen. And King Salman's son, the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, is making arrests internally and, and threatening Lebanon. So what's your take on what's happening? Well, in a perverse way, it reminds me of the United States in the sense that the Crown Prince is turning mass sentiment from below against the elite as opposed to turning it against himself. And that reminds me of what Donald J. Trump was able to do with a good deal of the Euro-American population when he turned their opposition to what's going on in the United States, not in a left-wing direction, but in a right-wing populist direction against a certain wing of the elite. Of course, Mr. Trump is a swamp rat and a crown prince of the U.S. elite himself. One of the differences is, is that I think in Saudi Arabia, what's going to happen is that the crown prince will wind up expropriating billions of dollars in wealth from those he's arrested, whereas in the United States, what's going to happen with this tax plan is that the people who voted for Donald J. Trump are really going to get soaked once again. Now, the good news is that the price of oil will rise. That is to say, that's good news for Russia and Nigeria and Venezuela and Angola. It's bad news for those who have to buy gasoline at the pump in the United States since I dare say that I expect by the end of the year, the price of a barrel of oil to go up maybe 30% because of the turmoil in Saudi Arabia. The bad news is, is that it's destabilizing Lebanon. It might lead to a war in Lebanon in concert with Israel attacking Hezbollah and or a war on Iran as well. And I'm afraid that the United States, which has a bone to pick 
that is to say Donald J. Trump has a bone to pick with Iran, might join into the fray as well. Well, I guess we'll have to keep watching that. Also, at some point this week, you know, I started hearing news reports about CIA director Mike Pompeo uh, meeting with a so-called DNC hack conspiracy theorist. And this is how the media was describing the person. And it was only like yesterday that I realized that they were talking about Bill Binney, the former NSA official turned whistleblower, who's like, as far as I understand, like very respected in like true progressive media. And as we've discussed on this show, and we've also had on this show other members of the Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity, of which Binney is a, a part of. And they put together that report during the summer, probably the most significant report that that got little to no press, you know, revealing that the emails leaked from the DNC were just that, a leak and not a hack. And they were very detailed in their report in terms of showing how the email could have been taken away with just like on a flash drive and that they weren't hacked. So now the story has bubbled back up and Benny is being disparaged by all the media that's been trying to beat the drum about Russia. And now they're calling him a conspiracy theorist. So I just wanted to know what you thought about that story. And it's it's, it's kind of surprising to me. Well, it's very unfortunate. It's, it's tragic, in fact. It's clear that Bill Binney deserves a hearing. It's unfortunate that he's being derided on NBC. He's being derided on CNN. And it's also part of a larger story, as your comments intimated. That is to say that there is a concerted and dedicated effort to shrink the range of discourse that's allowed in this country. Not only with regard to the case of Bill Binney, but also with regard to the case of Russia in general. And I'm afraid to say that many liberals are involved in this effort, sadly enough, although I think ultimately it will come back to bite them. Keep in mind that there is an ongoing attempt to say that anyone who works for RT is a foreign agent. And if they don't register as a foreign agent, they could be arrested or expelled from the country or or worse. That'll lead to Moscow retaliating against U.S. journalists such as CNN, the CNN Bureau in Moscow, the New York Times Bureau in Moscow. This is a very dangerous turn of events, and certainly Bill Binney deserves better. So stay tuned. Well, we certainly will. Uh, We'll follow up in, in the coming weeks. I've been speaking with Professor Gerald Horn, our geopolitical analyst. Thank you, Gerald. Thank you. In culture and media... Sebastian Gorka, that former Trump aide with apparent ties to an Hungarian Nazi group, has joined Fox News as a national security analyst. And on the better side of news, the human rights group Color of Change has launched a social media campaign that highlights athletes that have taken a knee, sat, or otherwise protested racial injustice while on the field, even after Donald Trump tried to twist the meaning of their protests as un-American or against the flag or military. The Superpower Change campaign features colorful renderings of each athlete with a superhero cape or costume. The first athlete depicted in the campaign was former San Francisco 49ers quarterback Colin Kaepernick. And finally, D.C. is mourning its poet laureate Dolores Kendrick, who joined the ancestors this week at the age of 90. A contemporary of James Baldwin, Kendrick is best known for her opus, The Women of Plums, Poems in the Voices of Slave Women, which won the Annisfield Wolf Book Award for Fiction in 1990. 
a theatrical adaptation, won the New York New Playwrights Award in 1997. And a recent stage adaptation was presented at DC's historic Lincoln Theater in 2016 and 2017. Kendrick recently completed a new book of poetry, Rainbow on Fire, which will be published by Black Classic Press. And those are our headlines and happenings. When we come back, a revolution still shaking the world 100 years later. Stay with us. So the brothers and sisters, for the struggle carries on. The international unites the world in song. So comrades, comrades, for this is the time and place. The international working class unites. The human race, the international working class, unites the human race. Tuesday, November 7th, actually marks the literal anniversary of what is known as the October Revolution. Russia at that time used the Julian rather than Gregorian calendar, but the actual day of the revolution is November 7th. People all over the world are taking the occasion of the 100th anniversary of the Russian Revolution to either celebrate it, attack it, or to reflect on its historical significance. Today's forum represents not only an opportunity to review the history of the Russian Revolution and to review some of the lessons learned from the creation of the Soviet Union it also gives us an opportunity to examine how the world was changed by the revolution, how the Soviet Union changed world politics in the 20th century, as well as gives us an opportunity to consider how the world has subsequently changed following the collapse of the Soviet Union in 1991. At the time of the Russian Revolution, Russia was a predominantly peasant-based economy. Most of the population lived in the countryside. Most people were very, very poor, owning either very little or no land whatsoever. The illiteracy rate among peasants was over 80%. Serfdom, or land slavery, had only been abolished in Russia as recently as 1861. Some industry developed in a few decades before the revolution in a few cities, but much of the industrial capital came from abroad. During the course of the next five decades following the revolution, the Soviet economy developed with such dynamic growth that it constituted the second largest economy in the world. There were no capitalist corporations or capitalist banks. All the enterprises in the major sectors of the economy were public property. The so-called profits of the enterprises did not accrue to a capitalist ownership class, but rather were used as part of a planned economy for economic and social growth. In the Soviet Union, all workers were guaranteed by law the right to a job. All healthcare was free. Education was free up to and through higher education. The Soviet population became one of the most literate in the world. These were pioneering social insurance measures that were at the time unheard of in capitalist countries. This does not mean that the Soviet Union was a wealthy country. On the contrary, it was emerging from extreme poverty and a legacy of feudalism. 
During the 1930s, the country embarked on a massive industrialization campaign with all of its attendant social dislocations. The Soviet leadership was racing to industrialize the country in advance of what everyone expected to be a second world war. The social and human costs of this race to industrialize within a decade what had been accomplished in the capitalist Western world within a century is well documented. In 1941, Hitler ordered the invasion of the Soviet Union. The Soviet Red Army and the Soviet people faced off against 80% of the German military machine divisions. In spite of all odds, the Nazi invasion was stalled, stymied, and eventually crushed in the largest military counteroffensive in human history. The Soviet Union was the principal factor in the defeat of fascism and Nazism, but the human cost of that endeavor cannot be overstated. Within the Soviet Union, more than 27 million people died in the struggle to defeat fascism. By way of comparison, the United States lost 400,000 people during the war. Also by way of comparison, vast parts of the Soviet Union lay in smoldering ruins as a consequence of the war, while U.S. cities, factories, and farms remained untouched. If it had not been for the Soviet industrialization drive of the 1930s, Nazi Germany would have conquered rather than been defeated by the Soviet Union. I mention this one example because it shows us that it is not possible to evaluate the Soviet Union, its strengths and its weaknesses, in an abstract way. We cannot evaluate the socialist experiment in the Soviet Union outside of the tortured environment in which the experiment developed. We are not idealists and do not want to approach historic phenomena by a measure of purist or idealistic standards. Rather, we evaluate the Soviet Union and all social phenomena by looking inside of, not outside of, the actual historical circumstances within which they operated. We are in a new day. Anti-communism, which became the unofficial but very real religion of the U.S. after the end of World War II, still haunts us. It is still a weapon in the arsenal of the capitalist class that wants to demonize socialism. But the fog of anti-communism is lifting, and this provides us with new opportunities. The re-emergence of mass movements against war and for peace, the re-emergence of the Black Liberation Movement, and the development of so many other movements for social and political justice are the inevitable consequences of the contradictions within capitalism itself. Our panel today includes Professor Anthony Montero. Dr. Montero is a WEBG Du Bois scholar and a lifelong activist, organizer, and leader in the struggle for peace and justice in the U.S. Thank you to the organizers, the Party for Socialism and Liberation, and Brian and others for inviting me here on this uh, auspicious occasion. In spite of the wave of reaction that is sweeping the United States and other parts of the world. People are gathering all over this country and will be gathering in the coming weeks to celebrate the great October Revolution, its 100th anniversary. Uh, this is both a celebration and a vindication. It is a celebration of the epoch of proletarian struggle going back at least to the 15th century. It built upon a logic 
that began with the Haitian Revolution through the French Revolution. And therefore, Lenin and the Bolsheviks were part of the legacy and inheritance of the revolutionary spirit of Toussaint, Bachmann, and Dessalines, the first successful slave uprising where the slaves themselves took power. But the Russian Revolution was also an inheritor of the revolutionary Jacobin tradition of the French Revolution. Issuing from the great October Revolution was the Chinese Revolution, the Indian Independence Movement, the Cuban Revolution, the African National Liberation Struggles, the African American Civil Rights and Black Liberation Struggles. The October Revolution celebrated as we celebrate it, the irreversible strivings of humanity for freedom and peace. After the October Revolution, the world would never be the same and has not been the same. The great October Revolution was also a vindication. After the publication of the first volume of Das Kapital in 1867, the revolutionary spirit of the European working class that led to its production seemed to have waned. And within the parties of socialism in Europe, a revisionist and reformist uh, tendency became hegemonic. This was nowhere better manifested than in the largest party of socialism in Europe, the German Social Democratic Party. And hence, an interregnum between the Paris Commune of 1871 and the U.S. Civil War and Black Reconstruction on the one hand, and the October Revolution occurred. During this interregnum, the idea of the possibility of the working class taking power seemed to have died among large sections of people who identified themselves as socialist or Marxist. In fact, theories of the uh, inevitable stability of capitalism, what today we call neoliberal economics, appeared, challenging the fundamental uh, ideas of Das Kapital, that the source of wealth was the exploitation of labor. This new theory argued that the source of wealth was the market. However, Lenin proposed a revolutionary uh, understanding of Marxist theories, and more than that, added to Marxism uh, the idea that Capitalism had reached a new stage, and he called that new stage imperialism, the stage of the hegemony of finance capital. Uh, this stage of capitalism produced a 
unified world system dominated by finance capital, that colonies and neo-colonies were a part of this world system, and Lenin, contrary to what the German theorists and social democrats uh, were saying, argued that the system would and could break at its weakest link, and therefore Russia could be the site of the first socialist revolution, and that if socialism could be built in Russia, Russia could be a mainstay of the world proletarian struggle. Lenin called the crisis that the world faced and that revolutionaries had to understand the general crisis of imperialism. In essence, Lenin argued that the logic of world history was producing a crucial triad, which was made up of three parts. Economic depression, war, and the third part of the triad, revolution. War, economic depression, and revolution were an inevitable logic in the period of the general crisis of capitalism. And of course, the outstanding question was not the objective conditions as much as the question of what would the subject of history do? Who would lead the proletariat in the moment of economic depression and world war? And hence, the centrality in Lenin's thinking of the ideological struggle. And for this reason, for most of the time of his uh, life as a Bolshevik living outside of the country, Lenin devoted enormous time to the development of Marxist theory and waging struggle with what became the revisionist and opportunist elements, mainly in Germany, but with their influences in the Bolshevik and a Russian Social Democratic Labour Party, especially among Mensheviks. Therefore, in 1917, this triad was most clearly expressed in the strategy of the Bolsheviks. In February, a revolution that was called a, a democratic revolution occurred. It was a bourgeois revolution with the objective of establishing a bourgeois democracy. But in so doing, it failed to meet the basic demands of the people, the Russian peasants and workers, and that was for bread and peace and land. The bourgeois government neither ended the war and Russia's participation in the war, nor did it bring economic stability to the country. This created conditions for the Bolsheviks to put forward their program, and as a result, they won a critical mass of the people, including sections of the armed forces. They effectively united the peasants and workers and were able to take power, establishing the first government of communists in the modern world. The great achievements 
of communist power in the Soviet Union were the industrialization and nationalization of industry and the collectivization of agriculture, which sealed the alliance of workers and peasants, which was necessary for the maintenance and sustaining of uh, Soviet power. Perhaps the greatest achievement, though, was the contribution of the revolutionary forces in Russia to the defeat of Nazi Germany. In fact, it was the crucial and critical uh, part of the anti-Nazi struggle. In the post-war period, the period after World War II and the defeat of Nazism, a new global movement emerged a World Communist and National Liberation Alliance was established, leading to what became known as a World Revolutionary Process, consisting of the socialist countries headed by the Soviet Union, the National Liberation Forces of Asia, Africa, and Latin America, and the peace and working class forces in the developed capitalist countries. This alliance led to spectacular historic achievements, especially in the zone of national liberation, where, for example, the Vietnamese people were able to defeat U.S. imperialism, where the people of Korea, while suffering horrific human uh, catastrophe, was able to defend itself, at least a part of Korea. The forces of national liberation in Africa, that continent, which is the foundation of the industrialization and initial accumulation of capital that led to the development of capitalism as a, a system in Europe and North America, Africa, which gave so much to the advancement of humanity, but suffered the most in the process of the development of capitalism. The African National Liberation Movement found an ally in the world socialist system and was able to make spectacular achievements leading to, in the 1970s and 80s, the defeat of Portuguese colonialism in Southern Africa, the defeat of settler colonialism in Zimbabwe, and ultimately the overturning of apartheid in South Africa. At the same time, we cannot underestimate the impact of the Soviet Union and the October Revolution upon the civil rights and black liberation struggles here in the United States. A revised history has been put forward in the last several decades, which claims that the forces fighting for civil rights in the South and for black liberation throughout the United States were pretty much guided by bourgeois liberalism. The opposite is the case. Martin Luther King, for example, from his time 
in Crozier Theological Seminary was an anti-fascist and a socialist. He had studied such anti-fascists in Germany as Paul Tillich and others who opposed on Christian grounds Nazism. But he was also a socialist in this early period of his life. And he never abandoned his anti-fascist and socialist foundations. He would say, near the end of his life in a celebration of the life of the great W.E.B. Du Bois, that Du Bois had always been a radical throughout his life. At the end of his life, King said, he became a communist. And then King asked, what is so unusual about that? He said, Pablo Picasso, the great painter, was a communist. Pablo Neruda, the great Chilean poet, was a communist. And then he named other great cultural figures and intellectuals who were also communists. And so why, King asked, is a big deal made over the fact that Du Bois became a communist. And what King was asking, and why has he been smeared and erased from public discourse? And it was obvious. It was because of McCarthyism and the Cold War. And you must recognize that King makes this speech only a few months after he had made another historic speech at Riverside Church called The Time to Break Silence where he said, who made America the policeman of the whole world? And asserted that it is my own government that is the main purveyor of violence in the world. This proceeds from the logic of the socialist revolution in Russia. just tuning in this is on the ground on the ground show.org voices of resistance from the nation's capital i'm esther Averam, and you're listening to professor anthony montero delivering an address november 5th 2017 at the thurgood marshall center trust in northwest dc on the program the russian revolution 100 years and still shaking the world which was sponsored by the party for socialism and liberation Montero was introduced by Claire Cook, an organizer with 1DC and also a member of PSL. Now we return to Professor Anthony Montero. History is not a straight line. And in every situation, there are contradictions. Sadly, most of us did not understand or recognize the contradictions, ideological, class, and political, that existed in the Soviet Union. And thus, by the middle of the 1980s, a new leadership had emerged under the leadership of Mikhail Gorbachev who proposed that the Soviet Union was facing a terminal existential crisis 
and that the only answer to that crisis was to abandon Leninism and communism and become social democrats, to establish a peace with the West, and that he was assured, he told us, that Western leaders would not move the forces of NATO and American imperialism closer to the borders of the Soviet Union. However, the program of perestroika or restructuring was a failure because it was not really a program, it was a slogan. And Gorbachev did not have a vision of resolving a crisis, the crisis of the Soviet Union. But more than that, and I think this is something seldom spoken about, the idea that Russia is a Western nation, a white nation, was part of the foundation of Gorbachev's thinking. And since Russia is white, and since white people live better than the rest of humanity, then Russia should join again and become a normal country, by which he meant a white nation, a European nation, in spite of the fact that the majority of Soviet people were non-white and non-Western. We could therefore say that Gorbachev's anti-communism went hand in glove with a white supremacist approach. Following the collapse of the Soviet Union, an imperialist triumphalism emerges. They celebrated an end of history. Today we would consider that one of the great jokes of all time. <laughs> the end of history. That history had returned to normalcy. That it was the end of the class struggle and that the West would determine the future of humanity. Not because its ideas were more powerful, but because its military could impose itself upon the world. Along with triumphalism went war, austerity, poverty, and ecological devastation. The question for us going forward is what is this stage of human history? Indeed, Lenin was absolutely correct that the stage of history which led to the Russian Revolution was a general crisis of capitalism, an irreversible crisis, a crisis which he predicted would lead to revolution and national liberation. Things did not quite work out as predicted. However, we have entered, I believe, a new stage. The general crisis of imperialism and of U.S. empire has evolved into a general crisis of Western civilization. The contradictions of the global system and of the Euro-American hegemony 
have proceeded forward, but the crisis is now engulfing the civilization itself. Du Bois argued as late as 1947 that a new historic logic had made itself present in the world. And thus he predicted not just the end of capitalism, but the collapse of Europe. And he projected that the collapse of Europe was necessary for the freedom of humanity. This, I should emphasize, is new in the thinking of revolutionaries. It was always believed that revolution and socialist revolution could save Western civilization. And it was a, a plausible argument to make. And it did make sense. The communists and socialists would save Europe from war the two most devastating wars in human history. The communists and socialists would save Europe from Nazism, from fascism, and from extreme reaction. The communists built their theory and their vision upon reclaiming the radical wing of the European Enlightenment. Communists upheld culture and art and music as against war and dehumanization. And hence the concept was that socialist revolution could save European civilization. However, after World War II, Du Bois, a historian, a profound historian, writing in his last History of Africa called The World in Africa. The first chapter is entitled The Collapse of Europe. This history of Africa is a history of the national liberation of Africa. But he argues that for Africa and by implication Asia to be free, European civilization would have to collapse. And as James Baldwin said, after the collapse, we can decide, as free human beings, what to do with the best of it on terms of human liberation. And this is a logic that I think carries many consequences with it. Europe to rise made the rest of humanity pay a terrible price, beginning with the transatlantic slave trade and colonialism, the partitioning of Africa, which still makes it virtually impossible for Africa to solve any of its problems, the over 10 million who died in the transatlantic traffic, the millions more who died in plantation slavery in the Americas, the millions who continue 
to have their lives stunted from the cradle to the grave. The dehumanization in this so-called civilized nation of the sons and daughters, the children of the very people who gave to this country through their free labor this great economy. So the toll of Western civilization on humanity has not yet been assessed. But I think we know enough to know that Western civilization has become a scourge upon humanity and hence the general crisis of Western civilization is the inevitable outcome of what Western civilization is and has been built upon. But Du Bois went further. He called for, as early as 1929, the unity of Pan-Africa and Pan-Asia in a great alliance against Western colonialism and imperialism. Some would say, well, what about Latin America? To which I would ask the question, why is a whole continent named after the linguistic group of the invaders, a minority? And isn't what we call Latin America really a unity of Pan-Africa and Pan-Asia? Where did they come from anyway? The people that inhabit the Americas before Europeans, quote, discovered it. So this unity of Pan-Africa and Pan-Asia includes what we call Latin America. But it is this unity of the great majority of humanity which is the future of humanity and it is in this international solidarity that the future rests. Some would say, well, what happens to white folk and to Europeans in a moment where European or white civilization is in a general crisis. Like James Baldwin, the choice is to not be white, to join humanity, and in not being white, to reject with all of the power and all of the intelligence that revolutionaries throughout European history have mustered to use all of that to undermine white privilege, white supremacy, and white hegemony, but not alone. Only in alliance with humanity's majority, who now have the historic initiative, the irresistible rise of the East is a manifestation in my mind in this time of Du Bois' concept of Pan-Asia. One might argue, but Asia is as divided as Europe was between and during the 20th century, between the two wars, during the two wars. And I would answer yes and no. The rapprochement between Russia 
an Asian nation, and China is very important. Russia as the Soviet Union and China were at odds over many, many questions. And in fact, the communist parties were almost like enemies to one another. The rapprochement and the strategic alliance of Russia and China is a part of a movement towards Pan-Asia. The recent rapprochement between Vietnam and China over the South China Sea is promising. And I often say, if Russia and China could come to an agreement, certainly India and China. And hence, the Leninist vision of the East being the foundation of a world revolution. The majority of humanity, China, India, and the Soviet Union, would create a specific weight that would be irresistible in the logic of history. This idea that Europe or Western Europe would not define history was already present in Lenin's theory of how to go forward. Of course, Kautskyites and Trotskyists argued the opposite. Without a revolution in Germany or an advanced capitalist country of the West, the Soviet Union could not survive. Lenin said, we don't have to go West, we can go East. You boys made the same claim, but in a different kind of language. He said, not only will the revolutions go east, but in order for there to be world revolution, they must be anchored in the east, or what we would call today the south, the global south. And Africa will be a part of the rise of Asia. As Asia rises, Africa rises, as Africa rises, humanity rises. The imprint of the great October Revolution and its meaning is alive today throughout the world because we refuse to let it die. This is why we are celebrating. We are celebrating it but we're celebrating our revolutionary courage and our revolutionary commitment. We go forward, not alone. We, like the Bolsheviks, believe that revolution is from the people. The people make revolutions, not parties. Parties are part of history to the extent that they can become a part of the people. Anyone that believes that small groups, no matter how good their intentions are, will fight fascism, if I might parenthetically say, I think before we fight it, we need to locate it. And I think I locate a fascism in the Pentagon, in the Congress of the United States, in the corporate Wall Street offices. Fascism is not new to America. Ask any black person. Ask the two and a half million people locked up. Go to any of your cities. I'm from Philadelphia. I'm, I'm familiar with Washington. What I see in Washington is this predatory removal of African Americans from their neighborhoods where families have lived for generations. We see it in Philadelphia. 
What do you call that? What did you call the murder of Muammar Gaddafi? The overturning of the government in Iraq and the killing of Saddam Hussein? What did you call the Korean War? What about Vietnam and napalm and other weapons of mass destruction? There's an argument to be made that the fascistization of American society goes back to the end of World War II. And we were not aware enough or woke enough to realize it. But at any rate, the fight against fascism will be the fight of the people for freedom. No small group is a substitute for the people. Once again, we celebrate the October Revolution and at the same time we celebrate our revolutionary spirit. We celebrate our solidarity with revolutionary forces that we know and don't know throughout the world. We are on the ready to come to the support of any people that are the victims of, quote, our imperialism. And we, in the spirit of the October Revolution and of W.E.B. Du Bois, must be cognizant of the fact that we must put the freedom of humanity first. And because we are in the most dangerous nation to ever exist on the planet Earth, a white supremacist regime armed with the most deadly weapons in a world where the darker nations are on the ascendancy and the only option to break the ascendancy of humanity is war, including nuclear war. This is the country that we live in. So what is our responsibility? It is first to humanity. And by putting humanity first, we express and stand for the best interests of our own people, our poor, our unemployed, our mothers, our daughters, our sons, our imprisoned people, those who are being gentrified. That is what we do. And in that sense, we uphold the spirit of Lenin and the October Revolution. Thank you very much. You have been listening to W.E.B. Du Bois scholar and activist Anthony Montero speaking on the program The Russian Revolution, 100 Years and Still Shaking the World, sponsored by the Party for Socialism and Liberation, November 5th, 2017 at the Thurgood Marshall Center Trust in Northwest D.C. Also, thanks to Professor Gerald Horn. The music we played this hour included the intro of New York by Jay-Z, a mix of the D.C. Labor Chorus singing the International at a celebration of International Workers' Day in 2016, and Claire de Lune by Kamasi Washington. Our theme music is Voodoo Child by Jimi Hendrix. This is On the Ground, Voices of Resistance from the Nation's Capital on Pacifica Radio. You can reach us and listen to all of our shows on our website, onthegroundshow.org. Please like our Facebook and Twitter pages at On the Ground Show and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. I'm Esther Averam. Thank you for tuning in and keep raising your voice. Peace. <laughs>